Hey, this morning for just uh, the next few minutes, I, I say that, I don't know if, what that means. It's not really going to be ne- a few, but um, I'd like to talk to you. Um, on this subject, the death-dealing sin and the life-giving gift. The death-dealing sin and the life-giving gift. I'm going to read from Romans chapter five. If you let me, if I can pull it up here, really quick. Romans chapter five. I'm going to read from the Message Bible, and then I'm going to reference the King James, uh, the King James Bible. But I'm going to read from the from the Message Bible. Chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. By entering through faith into what God has always wanted to do for us, which is to set us right with Him, make us fit for Him, we have it all together with God because of our Master Jesus. And that's not all. We throw open our doors to God and discover at the same moment that He has already thrown open His door to us. We find ourselves standing where we always hoped we might stand, out in the wide open spaces of God's grace and glory standing tall and shouting our praise. And there's more to come. We continue to shout our praise even when we're hemmed in with troubles because we know how troubles can develop patience in us and how that patience in turn forges the tempered steel of virtue, keeping us alert for whatever God will do next. In alert expectancy such as this, we're never feeling shortchanged. Quite the contrary, we can't round up enough containers to hold everything God generously pours into our lives through the Holy Spirit. Goodness. Everybody with me? Christ arrives right in time to make this happen. He didn't, and he doesn't wait for us to get ready. There's an old saying that they belonged before they believed. You ever heard that saying? They belonged before they believed. Uh, a lot of what happens in Western church and Western uh, society is uh, we try to, as they used to say, we try to clean a fish before we catch a fish. Uh, we try to make people believe things theologically and doctrinally before they even feel like they belong to the family. And I'm glad that the way that you're born into the kingdom is you're born into the kingdom. Jesus told, you remember he was talking to a Pharisee one day and he said, uh, how, must I, how can I be, uh, how, how can I enter into this kingdom? What do I need to do? And Jesus says, the only, you can only enter the kingdom by being born into the kingdom. You must be born again. And he said, how can a man be born again? Can he enter a second time into his mother womb? And, G- and Jesus said, look, the things that are of the spirit are spirit and the things that are of the flesh are flesh. You have to be born in this kingdom. Why did I bring that up? Because children belong before they believe. They belong. When, when a child's born, they immediately belong to father and mother. They don't know that they belong, but, but they do. And they don't believe anything because they're just little babies except that mother and father love them. Would to God the church would get back to a place where we would love people and allow them to belong before they believe. Is that okay? No requirements and no prerequisite from the church to allow other people to come in. You know, I told, I sat in a group of pastors with Randall in, in Myrtle Beach, Mark, uh, maybe three or four years ago, and he was talking about our witness and how, how are we going to be able to witness to what people see as the other. Another, you know, Western church sees the church and then what they call the world, which are the ugly, nasty, really bad sinners. And the funny thing about that is Jesus came to save those. That's who he came for. He, Jesus, he even said one day to church people, to religious people, he said, he said, they that are whole don't need a physician, but they that are sick do. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners, sinners to repentance. Right? 
And so we had this thing where you have the other and then you have the church. And what we have to do is we've got to dissolve the line that separates us and them. Really, when we see it, it's all just us. Does this make sense? For, for a couple of you, two or three of you? There can't be, there, Matthew, there can't, you can't go and say that you're going to present the gospel, which, by the way, is always and only good news, if, and I know you are, if you're not willing to go to what we consider the other. It's not really the crux of the message this morning, but I thought I'd pause here for a minute to say that. Let's, let's, let's get on back to the scripture. Six through eight. Christ arrives right on time to make this happen. Even if we hadn't been so weak, we would not have known what to do anyway. We can understand someone dying for a person worth dying for. And we can understand how someone good and noble could inspire us to selfless sacrifice. But God put his love on the line for us by offering his son in sacrificial death while we were of no use to him whatsoever. Now that we are set right with God by means of this sacrificial death, the consummate blood sacrifice, there is no longer a question of being at odds with God in any way. If when we were at, at our worst, we were put on friendly terms with God by the death of his son, now that we're at our best, just think of how our lives will expand and deepen by means of his resurrection life. Now that we have actually received this amazing, amazing friendship with God, we are no longer content to simply say yes in plotting prose. We sing and shout our praises to God through Jesus the Messiah. Verse 12, you know the story of how Adam landed us in the dilemma we're in. You're doing that story, right? The first, first sin and then death, and no one exempt from either sin or death. That sin disturbed relations with God and everything and everyone, but the extent of the disturbance was not clear until God spelled it out in detail to Moses. So death which was this huge abyss that separated us from God, dominated the landscape from Adam until Moses. Even those who didn't sin precisely the way that Adam did by disobeying a specific command of God still had to experience this death, this termination of life, this separation from God. But Adam, who got us into this, also points ahead to the one that's coming to get us out of it. Yet the rescuing gift is not exactly parallel to the death-dealing sin. Reading a whole lot of Bible this morning. Is everybody okay? If one man's sin put crowds of people at the dead end abyss of separation from God, just think what God's gift poured out through one man, Jesus Christ, will do. There's no comparison between the death-dealing sin and this generous life-giving gift. There is no comparison. Jesus said one day, the enemy, the thief, the thief comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. But he said, but I have come that you might have life and that you might have life more abundantly. Now, when I look across the Christian landscape, I do not see most people living the abundant life that Jesus paid for us to live. Maybe some of you do. If you do, I'd like to meet them. I really would. But that was paid for for us. It was the deposit that has already been made simply waiting for children, sons and daughters of God to make a withdrawal on the deposit that Jesus Christ made on our behalf. If death got the upper hand through one man's wrongdoing, can you imagine the breathtaking recovery life makes, sovereign life in those who grasp with both hands this wildly extravagant life gift, this grand setting everything right that the one man Jesus Christ provides. 
Here it is in a nutshell. Now listen, Paul's going to sum it up. Just as one person did it wrong and got us all into this trouble with sin and death, another person did it right and got us out of it. But more than just getting us out of trouble, he got us into life. One man said no to God and put many people in the wrong. Another man said yes to God and put many people in the right. All that passing laws against sin did was to produce more lawbreakers. Now, if you say that in a lot of churches and they don't know the reference to the scripture, they will stone you for saying that. They'll stone you for that. Listen, this is this is Bible. This is Bible. All that passing laws against sin did was it produced more lawbreakers. It did not, you cannot legislate morality in the Old Testament any more than you can in the United States Congress. You can't legislate morality. Morality is a heart thing. And that's why the Bible would say that Jesus would come and would write his laws upon our hearts. Which means he would give us his Holy Spirit and his Spirit would lead us and guide us into all truth. Not by keeping a set of laws, not by keeping a set of commands, but, but by keeping just this command. Love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. And Jesus said, and this is the red word, you have to deal with it. Upon these two hang all of the law and all the prophets. Everything that Moses said and all that was done back there, if you do these two, you're good. But sin did not and does not have a chance when in competition with this aggressive forgiveness that we call grace. When it's sin versus grace, grace wins hands down. All sin can do is threaten us with death, and that's the end of it. But grace, because God is putting everything together again through Jesus, invites us into life, a life that goes on and on, world without end. Now, amen to the Scripture. It is imperative in our maturation process and our faith that we come to terms not with just what we believe, excuse me, but why we believe what we believe. I've asked people over the years, I'm not a novice in this, I've been in ministry 22 years. I've been in preaching ministry for 22 years. I've been in ministry since I was very, very young. I've traveled, you know, I've been in, in uh, every meeting you can imagine, I've been in uh, you know, Baptist salvation meetings. I've been in Pentecostal tent meetings with sawdust on the floor. You name it, I've been it. I slept more in or under a pew probably in my first 15 years than I did a bed. That's what we grew up. I understand it. I know it. There's not a whole lot that I haven't seen. And I've asked people over the past 20 years, why do you believe what you believe? Not just apologetics, but why do you believe what you believe? I've challenged on occasion, and by on occasion I mean it's pretty much daily, the status quo. What is accepted as truth. If I were to ask you today, Rich, for instance, Rich, and, and I were to ask you specifically, what do you believe about this? And you tell me back, my answer would be to you, why do you believe that? Is it because you've done an exhaustive study and the, the Bible says that, G, that Jesus said that the Holy Spirit is our teacher? Has he come and shined a light on what, what, what you read in the Word in your study? Is, because otherwise... Why do we believe it? There's a whole lot of people that believe what they believe because mama believed it. And their mama believed it because her mom believed it and daddy believed it. And they believe it because her mom and daddy. And if you ask them for any reference spiritually or in the word, they cannot give you one. And so what happens is throughout, throughout the ages, these crazy lies that were never original part of the kingdom of God, that were nothing about what Jesus established in his church, begin to creep in the church. And we take them for truths, and they're not truth. 
Here's one of them that Jesus died for some but not for all. That's not, that, that is a lie. That's a fallacy. That's a scriptural fallacy. He died for all. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. God sent his son not into the world to condemn the world, but so that the world through him might be saved. Now, it's not blasphemous or heresy to, to question why we believe what we believe. It's actually called maturity. And if we wholeheartedly hold to things that we believe is true, only because we believe them, we're doomed to remain gullible and ineffective in our lives, especially as it pertains to the kingdom. The greatest prophets and philosophers in history dared to challenge the status quo. In fact, the greatest of all prophets, the very namesake of our faith, Jesus Christ, regularly challenged the status quo, and they plotted to kill him for it. Remember, Jesus would say stuff that would set people on fire. You have heard it said by those of old time. And for instance, he said to a bunch of church leaders one day, you've, said, you've heard it said by Moses, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And he said, but I say. He literally contrasted what he was saying with the establishment of his kingdom with what those, these people had believed for millennia. I, I, hope, I hope to God I'm in some way connecting with somebody. You, you're so quiet, you're either thinking really hard or you're just hungry. We have arrived at a very crucial moment in time when our faith cannot be passive. I'll say it again, our faith can no longer be passive. It's time to aggressively pursue truth and be willing to put to death beliefs and systems of belief that have long kept the church powerless. I want to ask you this. I, I, I want to ask, I want to, I want to pose this to you. We, I said this morning there are multiple families that, have a, that are here in the church that are not here today because they're sick. And we prayed, you know, when you say a prayer for them, do you actually believe that in that moment, the Heavenly Father, who is the creator of all things, actually, actually did what he promised he would do? Or do we just throw up these requests and maybe if they happen, we'll give God thanks. And if they don't, well, he's just going to make them suffer a little bit longer. I mean, when was the last time you walked up to a sick person? Because I believe this is a part of the church mandate. Jesus said it was. Prayed for them and watched God heal them. When was it? Or walk, it doesn't necessarily have to be a physical illness. Or walk up to someone that's, that's uh, dealing with an emotional stress or that's afflicted in their mind or that's, that, 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 that deals with, with emotional and mental issues. And you prayed with them and believed the Spirit of God right in that moment. Because Jesus did that. That's what he did. And Jesus looked at his disciples one day and said, These works and greater you will do. So when we pray, do we honestly believe that there's power with what we say? You do? Good. I do too. I, I completely do. Well, most people don't. I, as, in fact, I would say, especially with social media, when you say, well, I'll pray about that, that's the prayer. That was the prayer. <laughs> I'm not really feeling good. Would you pray for me? And people put on there, I'll pray for you. That most likely was the prayer. I very seriously doubt, and I know a lot of these people that actually went into a place, got along with the Lord and said, this is a sickness. The Bible says that with your stripes we were healed. By your stripes we are healed. And I'm praying right now for this person to be made health, healthy. That's the church's mandate. It's not a social club. It's not to come together and high five and who's got the cool car, who's got the nice clothes, and whose kids have what awards at school. That's social club. That's not church. The church should be impacting culture more than the culture is impacting the church. And it's been backwards for a long time. But there is a remnant of people that are arising, realizing, wait a minute, Jesus was never about religion. Jesus has always been about relationship. And if you're going to build relationship, you're going to have to be vulnerable. 
And if you're going to be vulnerable, you have to, vulnerability means you're going to have to get out of your comfort area, your comfort zone. And that means dealing with people that aren't always look like you, think like you, or act like you. I thank God that we are a multicultural church here. I love that. But it is not the case everywhere, not even in Statesville. I think it's one of the best things about us. No more time for sparkling words that produce fruit, that produce no fruit. The fruit of the Spirit, listen to me, is not the result of a work pro, works program, but it's simply the fruit that grows on the tree of surrender. Say it again. The fruit of the Spirit is not the results of a works program, not trying to do good so you can get good, as if God has some kind of a cosmic chalkboard keeping score of rights and wrongs. The Bible says that love keeps no record of wrongs. The Bible also says that God is love, which tells me that God keeps no records of wrongs. He's not marking the time he did good, rewarding you, and then marking the time he did bad and punishing you. That's just not who he is. He's not an old school teacher or grandfather looking to swat you over the head anytime you make a mess. What he is is a loving, extravagant father that wants above all things else, uh, above everything else, that you can feel and experience his love because when you feel and experience his love, you see him as he is. And when you see him as he is, you can see yourself as you really are. Most people have no clue who they are, what their true identity is. Here's your true identity. Listen to me closely. You're sons and daughters of a loving, living God. If you're sons and daughters, then a part of your DNA is the same DNA that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Think about that. Jesus was so much man that his, that his mama was a woman, but he was so much God that he, she was overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. Jesus was so much man that he died on a cross, but he was so much God that he got up on the third day. <laughs> Jesus was so much man that they brought in six water pots of water, but he was so much God that when he prayed over it, the water became wine. <laughs> yeah. Jesus was so much man that he took 39 stripes with a cat of nine tails, but he was so much God that by them stripes we're made healed. <laughs> yeah. No. He still is. So much God. Jesus was so much man that he can relate to you. He's so much God that he can pull you out of the miry clay of humanism and say, no, you're more than that. Jesus is so much man that he was not below feeling our infirmity, but he was so much God that he refuses to leave us in that infirmity. <laughs> Jesus is so much man that he leapt when that he wept when Lazarus died, but he's so much God that he said, Lazarus, come forth. Jesus was so much man that he's walking to heal a little 12-year-old girl that's in, her, in Jairus' house and he's going to die. But he's so much God that virtue comes out of him when the woman with the issue of blood attaches, attaches onto his garment. The church has got to learn to engage their humanness and to engage their godliness at the same time and to stop trying to divide the two. Jesus is 
So much man that he kneels down in the dirt and writes when a harlot stands before him. But he's so much God that he said, I don't condemn you. Jesus was so much man that he asked Peter, what do you really think about me? But he's so much God that he said, Peter, upon this rock I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I could go on, I won't belabor the point. We have to understand we've got to be so human that we can experience and feel the pains of being a human, a part of the human family, which we all are. But we cannot abandon the side of God that is in us that says we're here, but we don't have to remain broken and busted and, and poor and miserable. We have power because of the Holy Spirit. Yes, Jesus died, but he didn't stay dead. Yes, you're going to experience troubles. The Bible's very clear about it, the New Testament. In this life, you will experience troubles. But Jesus said, but rejoice because I have overcome the world. And this is the joy that overcomes the world, even your faith. So what are we willing to surrender? Are we willing to take the chance to set aside long-held opinions and seek the truth? Therefore, as through one man's sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and death passed unto all men that all sinned, for, the law, for unto the law sin was not in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the likeness of Adam's transgression. I coached Saki yesterday. I got no throat left. Who was a figure of him that was to come. The first point I want to make about this is listen to me. I want you to think about, back about Adam. I want you to think about Adam and Eve. Because that's what this is talking about. Did you know that Adam's sin was obviously not breaking one of the Ten Commandments? How could it be? They weren't were going to come for 2,500 more years. Most of us automatically assume that the sin that anybody speaks of is breaking some sort of a commandment. And sin doesn't necessarily mean that. Sin brings separation. Sin is missing the mark. It, sin, sin is aiming, but missing the mark that you're aiming for. That's what sin literally means. Adam's sin was not breaking the law. It's also interesting to point out that when God talks to Adam and says, where are you, Adam? Uh, Eve is not, and in, in, in Romans where we, just, uh, where we just read, Eve is not mentioned one time in the whole discourse. By Adam's sin, all men were born into death, but by the righteous gift of one man, we're all born into life. Eve's never mentioned, but Adam is. So what is this? Or what was this sin that separated Adam from the Father and fell upon all mankind? What was the sin? It couldn't have been breaking one of the Ten Commandments. It couldn't have been breaking the law. What was it? What was it that Adam did that brought separation? This, you would, that's what most people would think, and that is a product of it. But that's not, that's not what, it wasn't just the disobedience. Why did he disobey? If you ask why, if, if you ask why, they say, psychologists will tell you, if you ask the word why and get an answer to the seventh time, you'll finally get to the, to the center of a person's issue. Like, why are you mad? Well, my mom did this. That's not really why you're mad. Why are you mad? Yes, because they disobeyed the voice. But the reason they disobeyed the voice is because they listened to another voice. 
The sin wasn't just the disobeying of God's voice. The sin was to listen to any voice other than the voice of the Father. You think about this. Adam and Eve lived, we don't know for how long, with no clothes. But they didn't know they were naked until they heard the voice of the serpent. They ate of the fruit and then they said, oh my gosh, we're not clothed. Think about this. Literally, what, what they, they lived and were clothed in the presence and the glory of God. And their focus was not on themselves like American, Americans mostly are. Their focus was always upon the Father. And because their focus was on the Father, even if they were without something, they never noticed it because they only focused on what they had with Him. Where they messed up was listening to the voice of a serpent, a voice other than the Father. And here's what the serpent says to Eve. The serpent says, Hath God said that in the day you eat of this tree, you will surely die? But God knows you will not surely die. But God knows that in the day that you eat of this fruit, you will be like God. Go read it. It's Genesis. That's a direct quote. The truth was, they were already like God. The Bible says God created them in His image and after His likeness. They were created that way. The, the lie then and the lie now was, you have to do something to be like God. Or to be righteous. No, it's not about doing. It's about being. You're not human doings, you're human beings. Is this, is this making a little bit more sense maybe? No? No? Genesis 3.1, now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, hath God said, you shall not eat of the tree of the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God had told us, do not eat of it and do not touch it or you will die. And the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat thereof, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. And the, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, which means she saw it in a way other than the father had already told her, that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also to her husband with her. I like to say this, Eve took note of the, the fact that the, the fruit looked good to eat. In the New Testament in 2019, we think that we're going to be rewarded if we do good stuff. And the truth of it is, the fruit on that tree was the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. The, the fruit that tasted good will kill you just as fast as the fruit that didn't. Are we okay? When we receive our identity as sons and daughters in Christ and we're renewed by the Holy Spirit, then we're not trying to keep score. We're allowing the life of Christ to be manifested in, our, in us. And so we can influence people in realms that have nothing to do necessarily with church. I do as much ministry on my basketball court, soccer field, baseball field, or whatever, as I ever do on this platform on Sunday mornings. And I don't preach to my kids. I just love them. Just love them. Make them feel accepted. Make them feel welcome. I challenge them. You can do better. Most of the time, we pray before our games. I don't say, hey, man, have you accepted Jesus? No. I want to show them what he's like so that they'll have an appetite for Jesus. This person loves me. He accepts me. He teaches me. He cares about me. He's volunteering his time to do this stuff. That's why. That's why Xavion calls himself Xavion Button. 
Because he is, because I've invested my life in his. And I love that. Can't wait to see this generation of young children that have been completely, imagine if we had a generation of children who were completely and utterly secure in their identity and know that they're loved, accepted, and cherished. They would change the world. It's people that don't feel that way or have absentee parents. And, and I know that we have that in this church. And the, and the other parent can't, can't make up the difference for what they feel. There's a lack. And so the child grows up feeling like something he did or she did is the cause for the split up in the family. And they grow up. And that, that's a hard place to be. A lot of people have been that way. Creates dysfunction. Before you know it, we have citizens of the country that should be providing and producing. Instead, they're so messed up and warped that they've got to have years of counseling just before they can even take care of themselves, let alone be a contribute to society. Let me move on. When they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the cool of the day, Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. Imagine that. This is where they lived. This is where they basked. This is all they had ever known was his presence. And one lie from the enemy told them, we're not worthy. It's the same lie the enemy tries to tell you today. You're not worthy. The only thing the enemy has ever challenged is what God said, specifically what he said about you. He challenged Eve and Adam in the garden, and he challenged Jesus in the New Testament. Remember when Jesus was on his 40-day fast? And the Bible says that the devil came to Jesus and tempted him. What was his first words? Every time he tempted Jesus, what were his first words? If you're really the son of God, do this. He challenged Jesus' identity. The only thing the enemy really wants to challenge is your identity. And that's why I said if we can raise a generation of children who are completely secure in their identity and know that they are loved, accepted, and, and, and that it's, that's indiscriminate love, they'll change the world. That's ministry. When you go home and love your child and tell them that they're loved and provide for them, loving them doesn't just tell them you love them, provide them, do the things that need to be, correct them when they need to be corrected, love them, encourage them. You are literally, you're, you're, you're doing church at your house. I'm finishing up because I feel like a lot of you are ready to go. And the Lord called unto Adam when they hid in the trees and said unto him, where are you? And he said, I heard your voice in the garden. You've heard me say it many times. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. That's the pattern, even today. People are afraid because they see themselves as being without something, clothes. And so we hide. We hide from relationships with people because we have insecurities. And when we have perceived, you know, um, insufficiencies in ourselves then we feel that we're not good enough or not worthy enough, and so we don't just put ourselves out there and be who God created us to be. That is not living the abundant life. He said, I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. In 2019, I can tell you, the people out here that we're trying to reach that we should be reaching, they're afraid because they feel as if they're either not good enough or they're not accepted or they're not cherished. And for that very reason, they'll hide at all costs from any semblance of church or any semblance of kingdom because they've been hurt by church people. Because church people are some of the meanest people you ever meet in your life. Hopefully not here, but it does happen. It'll tell you how bad you are, how sorry you are. You know, make you feel guilty if you don't give enough. 
make you feel guilty if you don't show. I mean, just, just, it's just guilt, 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 which produces shame, 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 which ultimately people are like, I don't want anything to do with that. And he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And the Lord said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree where have I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman. Of course the man said the woman. Of course the man said the woman. That didn't change either. 2,000 years, or 6,000, whatever, 8,000 years later, it's still the case. Well, you know, the woman said this. I learned yesterday a hard lesson that I've been trying to learn now for about 20 years. Here's the lesson, man. Listen, this is key. This is paramount. If you don't get anything else I said today, get this, especially if you're married to hope to be. Your wife is always right. Period. My dad used to have a plaque that, hood, that, that hung in his office, and it said, had number one, it said, rule number one, the boss is always right. Rule number two, if the boss is wrong, see rule number one. <laughs> the same applies with husbands and wives. The wife is always right, rule number two. If the wife is wrong, see rule number one. And Elizabeth, in her own sweet, special way, made it very clear today, she's right. And I said, yes, ma'am, you are. <laughs> and the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent beguiled me, and so I ate. And the Lord said to the serpent, because thou hast done this, you are cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon your belly you will go. 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, her offspring. And it shall bruise thy head, thou shall bruise his heel. Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In sorrow you will bring forth children, and your desire will be to your husband, and he shall rule over you. Unto Adam he said, because you have hearkened unto the voice of your wife and has eaten of the tree, which I told you not to eat of, it cursed is the ground for your sake. I like that God didn't curse, he didn't curse Adam, he cursed the ground for Adam's sake. In sorrow you will eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles it will bring forth to you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return into the ground. And Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Adam also and his wife the Lord God made coats of skin and clothed them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us. He knows good and evil. Now lest forth he put his hand and take of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent forth from the Garden of Eden, uh, or sent him forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from where he was taken. So he drove the man out and placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way. I'm going to finish up with just a a few more points. Adam's sin was not breaking laws. There was no law given. It seems clear his sin was listening to and believing a voice other than his father's. Here's what your father says about you. And I can tell you the reason the father says it about you because everything the father wanted to say about himself, he said through Jesus Christ. The Bible, the King James Version, says that Jesus is the express image of his person. Literally translated in today's English, Jesus was everything that God wanted to say about himself. Jesus was literally God's selfie. You want to know what I look like? Don't look at me funny because I know you guys do this. And Jesus had no, it's all about the angles. No, no, it's all about the angles. I know girls that can work, and if they could work their job like they worked an angle, they'd be millionaires. Guys, too. 
Guys too, but girls know the girls know them angles. Jesus was the unfiltered selfie of Father. Huh? Yeah. Do it from here. Girls, this is how you do it. Don't ever do this. You'll find chins you didn't know you had. It was believing a voice that was someone other than his father's. Until now, he walked with the voice of God, and now for the first time, he fears his father's voice. His sin or missing the mark was more about the break in relational trust than do's and don'ts. Adam's shortcoming was a whole lot more about the break in the relational trust that he had with his father than it was about do's and don'ts. When Jesus came... What Jesus came to restore was not the law. He fulfilled that. He came to restore the relational trust that was violated and broken by the first Adam. The whole purpose of his ministry was perfectly dramatized in the parable of the prodigal son. The father was long awaiting the return of his son. The father never left the garden, though. Think about the parallel between the story of the prodigal son and father God in the garden in his original creation. When the prodigal son left the father's house, the father did not go chase him. But that doesn't mean he wasn't still awaiting the day that son would return. And what does the garden represent? The garden of Eden. Perfect peace and trust and harmony with father. That's what the garden was. And when you have that and there's passion, then, then things, things are produced. You're talking to a man with six kids. When there's passion, things get produced. When there's lack of passion, nothing's produced. The prodigal son leaves the house. Father doesn't chase him. Adam leaves the garden. Father doesn't chase him. But he left a light on. He put a flaming sword at the east end of the garden to guard the way, to keep the way. To keep the way. This is the way back, essentially. Remember when Jesus would say later, in the, he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. Here's what he's saying. I'm the way back to the Father. I'm going to undo the lie that the serpent told Eve because I'm the truth. And ultimately when that happens, you'll go all the way back to the tree of life. You partake of that tree and live in peace with the Father forever. Jesus, I am the way and the truth and the life. That's what he was saying. I'm the way. I'm the flaming sword. I'm the truth. I undid the lie that the enemy told Eve. You are worthy. You are righteousness. The Bible says that you are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Not just, not just his righteousness. You're his righteousness. You're not just righteous. You're his righteousness. And your righteousness cannot be taken any more than God's can. That's a pretty big deal. The biggest issue we have is believing it about ourselves. He had a flaming sword pointing the way back home. Jesus never preached on living good to get to heaven. Never. But he preached and demonstrated the way back to the Father. The end goal was never mansions. The goal was restoration and reconciliation. The perfect relationship between father and sons and daughters. That was and that is the goal. The sin of Adam and where we miss it is when we hear and believe any voice other than the father's. You know the voices. They come to you when you're not, and they come to you and tell you're not worthy of his goodness. <coughs> they come to you and tell you that you've gone too far or you've done too much. But the voice of truth tells a different story. Jesus came to show us what the father looked like and to give us a way back to his garden where we can again walk with his voice in the cool of the day. That was his purpose.
That is the life-altering, the life-giving gift. That every man, woman, boy, and girl would hear that Jesus loves you, that the Father loves you, that Jesus was not uh, being punished by God, but the Bible says that God was in Christ Jesus reconciling the world unto himself. This is how much he loves you. He loves you no matter what you did last night. He loves you no matter what you did last week. It's not an excuse to continue doing things that you know you shouldn't do. However, you're not disqualified from the family because you're not a human doing, you're a human being. No matter what Jacob or Isaac or David or Abby, Rachel or Jason could possibly ever do, they're always going to be my children. Or Savion, they're always going to be my children. There's not a thing they can do to not be my children. If they did, committed the worst crime in history, and they won't because they have a good father and a good mother, but if they weren't, they're still my sons. They're still my daughters. I would still give my life to redeem them to their original purpose. If Jesus said to a bunch of men one day, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more would the heavenly Father give to those that simply ask? It's his desire to give you good things. It's his desire to give you life. It's his desire to give you life more abundantly. Not only is his desire, he said, I'm going to go ahead and write the check. I'm going to go put it in the bank. Anytime you want to make a withdrawal, the check's good. The money's there. And we believe below our, our, our means anytime they're living the abundant life. Amen. William, play something on the keys for me. Let's all stand. I'm finished. Just one minute after 12. Look, this is how much the church AV department loves me. See that right back there? They put a, they put a clock on the wall so I could t always know what time it is. And Isaiah says he's going to make it flashing red when I get beyond twelve after uh, 5 after 12. <laughs> You're worthy, you're righteous, you're redeemed. Jesus loves you, his father loves you, you are accepted in his family. You're not only accepted in his family, once you're accepted in his family, you are commissioned to make sure that everyone around you feels his love emanating from you. I said it years ago when I came home from India on my first, my first trip from India. I said maybe the only, only Jesus some people are ever gonna see is the one they see in you and me. If you can't show them the love of Christ, who's going to do it? You call yourself a Christian, that means Christ-like. How Christ-like are you? Do you love your neighbors yourself? Do you willingly give of yourself to other people? Do you allow things to change what you believe about yourself? Or do you say, no, I'm his son, I'm his daughter, and that's what I'm always going to be? I don't want to belabor the point anymore. I thank you for bearing with me. Well, we've been given a much, a much... A broader spectrum of life than we've ever lived. I want to see this church living there. I want to see the impact that it's going to have in your life and in your family's life and the life of your community. I had a uh, Sarah uh, put on, Jacob was here working the other day and he painted, we're painting back some of the rooms. We're still doing some renovation, only being here since December. Still got some things to finish up and uh, we painted the ugly orange wall idea it was it's not cutting you but it's pretty close and um, he, he was here and just serving Sarah and can you do this and she put on Facebook she said you have one of the most honorable boys he asked again and again I'm not trying to brag on Jacob but you cannot imagine how big my heart was filled with pride knowing that I wasn't here didn't tell him to do the things that he did but he was offering to help in any possible way that he could and she said I know that America's future is bright because of young men like that what that does to a father is oh man yeah what do you think it does to your father 
when you step up and walk in your place and walk in your space like you should when you represent Christ well can you imagine the pride uh, the, uh, the, the pride the father has how his heart swells with pride when you do the right thing when you love people well even those that we consider the others I would rather, I'd rather be in a relationship with someone that loves me than someone that could tell me everything they believe and why they believe and why I'm wrong for not believing like they do. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this morning for the people that have come. I feel like, Lord, I've been around the bush, uh, the bush a few times, but I think I've landed in a spot where we need to learn to completely and utterly be in contact with our human side but also with the, our godly side and that the two are not separated Lord that we can love well that we can be perfect representations representatives of your family of your kingdom whether it's at work or at school in church wherever that we would be representations of your family that people would feel your love emanating from us that they would be attracted to us and not even know why that there would be a presence about us and not know why until they ask and we say look it's just the Lord Jesus I'm in a relationship with him he loves me oh and by the way he loves you too I thank you Father for this conference that comes up this weekend where we've got people as you know coming from many different states this place will be full of people coming to worship I pray that there not be one soul that comes into this place that leaves unchanged that everyone that comes in, if there are some that come in and don't know you, that they would know you before they leave. But beyond that, those that do know you would walk into a new and fresh, deeper dimension of your grace, of your love. I thank you for those that are coming to help serve. I thank you for the lock-in that the teenagers are going to experience here, 50, 60 teenagers. I pray that their lives be completely and utterly changed forever as a result of the glory that's released in this house Friday, Saturday, and Sunday of this week. I thank you for everyone that's participated, Father, and still it will participate this week, Lord, in preparing, Father, and gathering the food and, and expense and, and hotel cost and, and, and some of the repairs that the church need to be done for them. I bless them all right now and pray a blessing upon them. And thank you for them, Father. Thank you for the faithful workers of this place. Lord, we love you and thank you for the opportunity to come together and worship you. We pray that you go with us this week, go with us at school, go with us at work. Let us know you love us. We're completely and utterly accepted in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.